0: Welcome to episode 528 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with music journalist extraordinaire, Alan Jones. We talk with Alan from his place in in South London about his newest memoir, titled Too Late to Stop Now. We dive into what he likes most about being a music journalist, the scene back in the 70s with musicians and journalists, Chrissy Hind, Johnny Thunders, heroin, cocaine, the change in rock and roll, intimacy on the road, CD Hotels, his most fun interview, his most challenging interview, Lou Reed Van Morrison, the corporatization of musical endeavors, the police, among other things, a grand conversation with Alan Jones this go round. We share some actual findings as published in the April 2022 issue of Harper's Magazine. We have an EW poem called Lightness, and all of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 528 of Troubadours and Racan Tours.
1: I could be anything in the world that flew I would be a bat and come swooping after you And if the last time you were here things were a bit askew Well you know what happens after dark When rattlesnakes lose their skins and their hearts and all the missionaries lose their bark Oh, all the trees are calling after you And all the venom snipers after you Are all the mountains bolder after you? If I could be any one of the things in this world that by Instead of the dentured ocelot on a leash, I'd rather be a kite and be tied to the end of your string and flying in the air, babe, at night. Cause you know what they say about honey bears when you shave off all their baby hair. You have a hairy minded pink bear bear. The bells are rolling out for you, and stones are all erupting out for you, and all the cheap blood suckers are flying after you. Yesterday Daisy Mae and Biff were grooving on the street, and just like in a movie, her hands became her feet. Belly button was her mouth, which meant she tasted what she'd speak. Woo! But the funny thing is what happened to her nose. Woo! It grew until it reached all of her toes. Woo! Now, when people say her feet smell, they mean her nose. And curtains layers with diamonds dear for you. For you, and melting ice cap mountaintops for you. Oh, and knights and flaming silver robes for you, and bats that will the kids turn prints for you. Swoop, swoop, oh baby, rock, rock. Swoop.
0: Hello, Alan Jones. Is that you? Yes, it is. It's uh, nice to have you on. Troubadours and Rock on Tours yet again.
2: I'm glad to be back. Thank you for asking me.
0: Well, before we get started, let me share a little background with the listeners. Alan Jones is a British music journalist and editor. Following university, Alan took a job in the stockroom of Hatchards on Piccadilly. While he was there, he applied for a writing job at highly acclaimed Music Weekly Melody Maker with a letter that concluded with this statement, Melody Maker needs a bullet up its arse. I'm the gun pulled the trigger. He joined the staff in 1974 and became editor ten years later. In 1997, Mr. Jones left Melody Maker to found and edit Uncut, a monthly magazine covering music and films. He was its editor until 2014. Allen wrote a column in Uncut for 15 Years titled Stop Me If You've Heard This One Before, based on his experiences as a music journalist in the 1970s and 80s. A gilded time for the music press, his first memoir, Can't Stand Up From Falling Down, was published in August 2017. It shared stories from his column. His second memoir will be published in the U.S. this July. It's titled Too Late to Stop Now. In it, Alan Jones remembers a world that once was, one of dark excess and excitement, outrageous deeds and extraordinary talent, <coughs> featuring legends at both the beginnings and ends of their careers. Troubadours and tours is happy to have on the program once again, Mr. Alan Jones. Again, thank you, sir. And uh, just so the folks know, where are we talking with you from? Where are you sitting today?
2: I'm sitting at my desk at my home in Twickenham in southwest London.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for taking time. It's probably about, you know just past uh, lunchtime there. more about 2 o'clock or so?
2: Yeah, exactly 2 o'clock.
0: All right. Yeah, it's a little earlier here where I'm calling you from. Um, and I have a list of questions. I didn't share any of them with you. You don't need them. You're good on the fly. Here's the first <laughs> one. Here's the first one. What do you love most about being a music journalist?
2: Well... I was a music journalist. I've retired now. I've been retired from Uncut for uh, nine years this month. Um, I don't miss anything about the daily, daily routine of running a magazine anymore. Uh, what I do miss uh, and miss greatly is the, the, the music scene that existed in the 70s and 80s when I was lucky enough to be a part of it as a staff writer on Melody Maker. Um, I mean, there was just so much music, so much excitement, Uh, not weekly, but daily, hourly. Uh, Things were happening all over the place. Uh, I I was just privileged and and surprised that I was, you know, a small part of it.
0: Yeah, I could imagine as a, I mean, as a kid, you started in 74, getting on 50 years ago, right? I mean. Exactly, yes. And, you know, you see depictions of of that sort of music journalistic scene and uh, TV shows and movies where people are passing around mirrors of cocaine and joints and bottles of booze and, and the like, is that, is that your experience? Is that real or, or is that a bit, uh, you know, fictionalized to the point of exaggeration?
2: Well, if you're thinking of series like vinyl, yep, uh, the I HBO am. series, I, I thought you might be. Um, I think I was one of the few people that actually enjoyed that series. Um, I, it, it had no documentary value, but it, it, it evoked that time, I thought, really quite vividly. Um, there was a lot of cocaine about it. Um, there was a lot of drinking. Um, that, that's, that was part of the, 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 the kind of landscape at the time. If you went on, a, on the road with a band, it was a rare occasion uh, that, you know, the tour manager didn't cut out lines of cocaine backstage. Uh, everybody tooted up before they went on stage, then partied afterwards. Um, I mean, that was just a regular thing that happened.
0: Yeah, the culture, right, of it. Um, And if you made it, a lot of folks didn't make it, as you you know firsthand. I'm sure some of your friends and colleagues, uh, yeah, it's a tough life to live. I'm sure it's a lot of fun. Uh, but
2: Well, it seemed huge fun at the time, and uh, slowly the casualties did start mounting unfortunately Um, there were some very very close friends of mine uh, notably uh, Pete Fondon and Jimmy Honeyman Scott from The Pretenders uh, who both died of of their addictions Uh, both took the partying side of things pretty seriously uh, and Jimmy was too physically frail to to live that lifestyle Uh, and and Pete was just enamoured of it as Chrissy Hine talking about what happened to the Pretenders in the new book uh, says, you know, that they were, the Pretenders were a great rock and roll band, but it was rock and roll that killed them in the end. I mean, Pete, as she mentioned, uh, you know, worship people like Johnny Thunders, that whole kind of junkie chic thing that was associated with rock and roll, which I never really bought in into at all. Um, I mean i I love taking drugs. I can't pretend that I didn't have a really really good time uh, but it it had a a devastating effect on a lot of people.
0: yeah, you mentioned Johnny Thunders, you know the the punk scene in uh, in in New York City, CBGBs and all that uh, I guess it influenced from your firsthand knowledge expertise experience. It it influenced uh, a lot of artists in the UK, didn't it?
2: Uh, well, Chrissie Hyde was quite specific uh, about Johnny Thunders introducing heroin to the London punk scene, and for you know all his great merits, and I loved Johnny Thunders uh, and the Heartbreakers, and I loved him in the New York Dolls, uh, but he, he he did have a, a deleterious impact on, on on the London punk scene, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah. Yeah, from what little I know, and I'm I'm a huge fan of the Pretenders and Chrissy Heine. Chrissy's originally from Ohio, and then she migrated yes. to to uh, England. I guess that's where she was more accepted. I don't know how that happened. Do you have any clue? I mean, you have interviewed her, I know, in the past. How, do Do you uh, recall how she ended up in in uh, in the UK from
2: Ohio? i uh, she was always besotted with English music. You know, the Kinks, the Stones, the Who. Um, she wanted to be in a band. Nothing was happening for her in America. Uh, she tried to put groups together. Uh, she, she moved to New York first. Then she came to England, basically, uh, because that's where she thought things were happening. Uh, it was her intention to come to London and, and form a group. Um, she had no luck at all. Um, she would audition, get turned down, get get another audition, get turned down for different bands, eventually joined uh, the Johnny Moped band briefly. uh, But they thought she was a little pushy, a little too aggressive. She took songs along to um, rehearsals, uh, including an early version of Brass in Pocket, uh, which they didn't think was very good, so chucked her out of the group. Uh, she ended up working for NMA uh, New Musical Express as a as a music writer I think she was only there for a year maybe a little over a year um, and I think she actually left NME the week that I joined melody maker so our, our paths didn't cross until much later until 78 79 when uh, when she'd already formed the pretenders uh, but it, it was a real real up, uphill uh, battle for her um she couldn't find people who took her seriously uh most of the um the bands that she she wanted to join or audition for just thought she was a, a loudmouthed American uh,
0: and she's and they, a woman it, I'd imagine that matter excuse me
2: I uh, yes I'm sure that came into it as well um I mean, Rat Scabies was notably dismissive of her at the time. Uh, She just couldn't, it seemed, uh, find anybody that that, that took her seriously as a singer, as a guitarist, as a songwriter even. And eventually she did find three incredibly compatible musicians in Martin Chambers, uh, her drummer, and jimmy is lead guitarist and uh, the arranger of most of the songs and uh pete and i think she enlisted pete first and he knew uh jimmy from hereford where he was originally from mm-hmm. pete at the time had just arrived back in london from australia where he'd been playing in a a bar band called the bushwhackers i think uh and they hit it off and they had a brief relationship uh and slowly the pretenders came together they had a mm-hmm. Uh, a drummer that they worked with for quite a while who didn't work out. Then Jimmy suggested Martin, who we played with in a a group called Cheeks, I think, in Hereford. And Martin was living at the time in London and working as a a driving instructor. Uh, But she knew from the first time that Martin played with the group that that was her ideal lineup. And she still talks about that group as if it was still around somehow. Um, the deaths of Jimmy and Pete, you know, still haunt her music.
0: Yeah, but Martin's still with her, and they have a new album, I think, coming out in September.
2: I, I think there might be another one. Uh, they they had one out what two years ago, "Hate for Sale." Yeah, uh, which sounded like it could have been the third Pretenders album. Uh, it, it 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 evoked the spirit of the first two albums so considerably. Uh, it, it was almost like a greatest hits collection.
0: You know, it's funny. I, I remember, uh, while not, not too far back, I had a conversation with Legs McNeil, who you probably know from Punk Magazine, uh, and we were talking about the Pretenders, and he, he didn't like the Pretenders. And I'm like, what do you mean he didn't like the Pretenders? He goes, yeah, I thought they were boring. I said, really? I think they're excellent. And we were going back and forth a little bit. It's nice to hear you talk about them so fondly.
2: Uh, oh, that, that, the, the first two albums were, were, were just great. I mean, that group had so much potential that there was untapped you know just two albums from that original lineup was wasn't enough really no
0: no and no. you look at the scene today that was that that's where i'm I'm trying to get to i you know i look at i was looking at uh the book um that we're we're, we're sort of one of the reasons we're talking today is is because of of your latest uh memoir which uh, comes out here? It's already out uh, over in England, and I suppose on uh, in, in in Europe generally. It's titled "Too Late to Stop Now." Here it uh, is, will be available in July, and I was reading some of it over the last week or so, and I'm looking at the the folks that you're you're talking about. You know, conversations you've had and experiences you've had with people like Elton John, and uh, Little Feet, Loudon Wainwright and Peter Gabriel, Lou Reed, it goes on and on, and it's amazing. Robert Plant, The Damned, The Clash. With this experience, this insight, how how would you, I guess, compare that, juxtapose that to what you see and understand about the rock and roll scene now? You know, have things changed much? Are they the same? For better, for worse?
2: The biggest change, and I think for the worse, uh, is the lack of access that um, journalists get with bands these days. Um, when I started, it was like the Wild West out there. Um, record companies uh, would be, you know, so keen to get a band in, in the music papers and, mm-hmm. um, that you were allowed you know, virtually free access to them. If you went on the road with a band, uh, I rarely travelled with uh, a press officer or anybody from the record company, with a few notable exceptions. Uh, you just joined in with a group. You were there with them. Uh, you travelled with them, stayed in the same hotels. You hung around backstage, uh, after show parties. Uh, you were with them all the time. And groups then were... were In many ways, less guarded than they are now. Um, That there's a whole industry that seems to exist to uh, create distance between artists and journalists. Uh, That you're allowed an hour with somebody. Um, If you're lucky, it will overrun by you know maybe fifteen or twenty minutes. But in those days, you started an interview and it might go on for two, three, four hours. Uh, until the person you were talking to uh, or yourself was, you know, exhausted, all the questions being asked and hopefully answered. Um, There was no filter between band and journalists as as there is today. Uh, And one of the consequences of uh, COVID and the uh, lockdowns uh, is that by sheer circumstance, um, interviews had to be done via Zoom usually. And the record companies have ca- kind of carried that on. So there are less trips uh, to interview, uh, to go to America, say, to interview an artist in person. Um, it's all done remotely, which contributes to an even greater distance between subject and journalist.
0: Yeah, it seems that it's too controlled, perhaps, or sanitized. Is I mean, why do you think that's the case? It's just more efficient or is it the handlers, so to speak, the record companies don't want you to to get to know or see a foible or something, they, they're artists?
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, it, it's safety, really. Uh, if you go on the road with a band, or if you're just in a room with somebody, um, the unexpected can happen. And that usually terrifies you know, PRs and management. Uh, they don't want their artist getting involved in anything too controversial you know that they wanted to be safe they wanted to be controlled they wanted to be homogenized Um, you know it's more than ever it feels like you know a product is being sold Uh, you don't get if you're doing an interview by by zoom um, you're just not going to get the intimacy that you would get with a one-on-one interview and of course there's no opportunity these days for journalists to to go on the road with bands which is what i particularly love um documenting a tour going to different cities different gigs different towns meeting different people seeing different reactions from different crowds to different groups uh i think in the 17 years i was editor of uncut we had maybe four or five on the road, pieces in that time, and they, they, they again were fairly controlled. Um, it, 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 it didn't have the the, the kind of anarchy that prevailed, the, the sense of chaos that often prevailed uh, around tours in those days, um, when a you know group would go to America for the first time, and you know they'd ju- just get in the back of a van and you know, drive everywhere. Um, it, it, sometimes, you know, staying in, in seedy hotels, you know, the, uh, the gigs are in small, you know, kind of clubs. Uh, everything's on a, on, a, on a much higher scale these days. Um, you know, groups don't seem to tour in the same way. So there's, le- there's less opportunity for the kind of documentary writing that, 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 that I ended up kind of specialising in.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe you and I are going to sound like two old guys saying, ah, you know, back in the old days and today's kids, they don't all that kind of mentality. But uh, regardless, I'm still going to go there. Uh, why don't today's artists, do you think, not say, you know, get away from me, Mr. Business Person. I, I want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to have this person come with me and we're going to hang out and I'm going to share who I am, and and we're going to have a real connection. Why don't you think artists rise up and tell those folks to back off?
2: I don't know, but I wish they would. You know, I've I've been in, uh, you mentioned Robert Plant. Um, I I did an interview with him uh, when Raising Sand came out, Uh, and the interview was going really, really well. Uh, He was engaged with the questions. Uh, He was answering everything at great length, loads of detail, very, very funny, very, very perceptive. Uh, and we I, I felt we could have carried on for you know most of an afternoon. Uh, but at a signal from um, his PR on the hour, the the interview ended. And you know he, he was very apologetic. You know said, "No, time's up. I don't know what else he had to do that day. I had the impression it wasn't very much. Uh, but everything is, you know, you get allocated this time and the, the record companies think well that's enough uh, that most of the artists seem to be, be happy with that arrangement um, I, I wish there was a greater freedom I'm sure that that uh, uh, there are people who will you know kind of override uh, the time limits or the, 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 the interview allocation that you have uh but it doesn't doesn't seem too many and from my own experience it got more and more frustrating to, to work like that
0: yeah and i think you hit it earlier when you said it becomes more like a commodity the the artist and rather than you know you are an artist as well as the journalist you have two artists sitting together uh and and and, and engaging and then through your art of writing uh, and your your craft of writing, you're sharing these beautiful pieces for people to read and enjoy. Uh, that that's a better situation rather than being used almost as as an advertiser for the for the product of that uh, particular musician. That's you know, but well, that's the corporatization of everything. And you know, I don't want to go down that road too too far and, and start uh, 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 you know <laughs> proselytizing. <laughs> so I'll stop now. But uh, how about um, this? This is kind of connected who did you have the most fun conversing with thus far you have some po- people that pop into your your mind
2: oh one immediate well more than one immediately but uh, the first one um always when i'm asked that question uh is lou reed yeah her- he yeah he, he, he was just i mean i was a, a huge velvet underground fan huge fan of Lou's work, you know, Cale's solo work, Nico's solo work. Uh, I was besotted but with, with everything about the Velvet Underground. Um, so I was thrilled to meet him, and I was, you know, quite aware of his reputation for, you know, vir- virtually eviscerating every journalist who tried to interview him. <laughs> uh, but I, I somehow really got on with him. He, he seemed to take a real shine to me. Um, and he, he was so enlightening uh, about everything that I asked him. Uh, The first time I I interviewed him, I was given a list of questions that uh, uh, I wasn't to ask. Uh, I I was told not to ask him about the Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol, John Cale, Nico. Uh, Don't mention Metal Machine Music. Don't mention Berlin. Don't mention David Bowie. Definitely don't mention uh, Transformer or walk on the wild side. The list rather went on uh, and I thought, well, you know, this may be the only opportunity I'm ever gonna get to not only meet, but actually speak to Lou Reed. So I just ignored um, the the instructions that I'd been given and dived straight in with questions about the Velvet Underground. And Lou answered them all unhesitatingly in loads of detail. And I've got to say, he was just the funniest person I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I mean, he was scathing. He had a scalding tongue. Um, but he, every moment with him was just exciting.
0: Yeah. I, again, I bring up Legs McNeil. I, he talked to me about Lou Reed in the same way. Uh, and uh, that was one of his favorite interviews Uh uh, and the first time he approached him at CBGB's, they asked, uh, or what might have been Max's Kansas City, they asked him if, if he would be their first interviewee for their new magazine, Punk. Uh, and he's like, oh, sure, I'm sure you have a huge circulation, and it's going to benefit me. <laughs> <laughs> it falls right in line, I think. Um, again, we're talking with Alan Jones, music journalist extraordinaire. Uh, he has a new memoir coming out, in July. And before we forget, why don't we tell folks how they might uh, get their hands on it when it is available here in the States in July?
2: Uh, Well, it's published by Bloomsbury. It should be in in most um, bookshops. And of course, it's uh, available from Amazon and other uh, online uh, retailers. Too Late to Stop Now is its title. Uh, And
0: Let's hit you with another question when we have you on the line. Um, Well, how about who were the most challenging to talk with thus
2: far? Um, Lou, again, uh, for very obvious reasons. Um, But the the most difficult single person I ever interviewed was probably Van Morrison. Uh, I did him twice. Uh, the first time was a complete disaster. It was backstage at Nedworth in 1974. And it wasn't long after I joined Melody Maker. And one Friday evening, uh, Michael Watts, the assistant editor, came up to my desk and asked me what I was doing the next day, the Saturday, uh, and I nothing planned. Uh, he said, would you like to interview Van Morrison? You know, as a, as, as a huge fan I said yes immediately and I wondered why I'd been assigned to do an interview with you know (laughs) such an important you know star and it I quickly realized uh, that Mick had asked virtually everybody else in the office and they'd all come up with some excuse not to have to spend an afternoon with Van Morrison in his trailer after a show at a festival when they knew that he would probably be uh, totally incommunicative, uh, probably not in a very good mood, and they just wanted to, to avoid that at all costs. Uh, but even if I'd known that, I would have said yes, as I did. I was you know, so thrilled at the idea of interviewing him. How old were you, would uh, you say, at that point? Uh, I was 22. So, yeah, just a kid, yeah. Uh, just a kid, yeah. And, of course, I, I, prior to joining Melody Maker, I had no journalistic experience at all. Uh, never interviewed anybody. I was thrown in, you know, the, the deep end, really, as soon as I joined. You know, the very first week, there was no sort of training course that they sent you on. Um, you, you know, you just gained the experience by doing the job. And with Van, um, there had been a story in Melody Maker uh, that very week, I think, about a riot at a gig, uh, one of his concerts in Italy, I think, uh, which he. Uh, claimed it, got everything about what happened totally wrong. Uh, And I tried to explain that it had nothing to do with me. I wasn't on the news desk. Uh, I I didn't, I hadn't even read this particular story. Uh, But since I was from Melody Maker, I must have been somehow responsible or shared some complicity in this erroneous (laughs) story. And I couldn't get him off the subject for ages. Uh, He just sat there glaring at me and, and smacking a, uh, a, a, a can of a soft drink or a beer uh, against the metal rim of the desk it was just this kind of just constant smack 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 and him glaring um, and he just he, he didn't answer anything I couldn't get uh, you know a, a more than a, a kind of a nod from him or a grunt uh, it was just really hard work and, and after about 20-25 minutes I just said look you know you're wasting my time. I'm probably wasting yours. I'm just going to go. So I walked to the door and I don't think he'd actually had anybody uh, walk out on him before. <laughs> uh, so he called me back uh, and he said, let's start again. You know, we, we we obviously haven't, you know, kind of started off on quite the right foot. So I asked him another question and he just glared at me again and said, where are these questions coming from? And I, I, I just, you know, rather weakly said, you know, from, you know, years of loving your music. And he said, do you think I really care? And I said, obviously not. So that time I just packed everything up and, and walked out on him.
0: He, he said, do you think I really care that you love my music?
2: Yeah. I mean, no, nothing was relevant to him. You wow. know. Um, he just got kind of to brush me off. Um, he was obviously in some foul mood. Uh, I did him again. Um, it was almost 10 years later. Um, and at that time i did get a lot more out of him uh, he he was much more responsive and uh, after the initial sort of curt replies to, to questions he seemed to relax a little and became a, you know a lot more expansive and i thought god this is going really really well and he was in the middle of talking about something uh his younger days in belfast i think and just going into very evocative detail and almost mid-sentence he just looked at me and said that's it interview's over and i I, what have i said what i you know i i just been listening to him at that point i hadn't made any kind of you know kind of facetious comment or a provocative comment that it might have you know caused him to, to want to uh call a halt to the interview, but it turned out that my hour with him was up. Uh, There wasn't a clock in the room. I had noticed that he wasn't even wearing a watch, but he knew exactly when the hour was up. And as he announced that the interview was over, there was a knock on the door and his manager, who was a friend of mine, um, Cole Kellogg's, he used to work for Stiff Records. I I can't remember how he'd ended up uh, managing Van, uh, but he'd actually got me the interview with him anyway Kellogg's came in and said you know sorry you know, interview's over he'd been outside uh taking note of the time and as we were walking out i said yeah, how did he know that the hour was up he said it's just an instinct instilled in him from years of performing if Ben plays a gig and he's booked for an hour that's what he's paid for anything over he's not getting paid for. So, you know, I've heard from a, a friend of mine, um, a drummer called Bobby Irwin, um, who most famously uh, has worked with Nick Lowe also worked, uh, with Ben for, for many years. And I used to see Bobby a lot. And he once told me that, um, at one recent show that they played, Ben had suddenly decided he wanted to play, um, almost Independence Day, which is a song that uh, I don't think he's played that many times live. And Bobby said he was building up it just gloriously. It was climax after climax. You know what Van's like and mu- mm-hmm. the way that his music evolved. Beautiful. And, you know, Bobby thought, God, this is going to be one of the best things I've ever played behind. And halfway through a line in the song, Ben indicated that it was over and just walked off stage. The hour was up. And it didn't didn't matter where he might next have taken that performance, it was just immediately curtailed. He'd done his contracted hour, all that he'd been paid for, and was off stage before anybody knew what he was doing.
0: Wow, that's odd, isn't it? I mean, he seems like such a uh, an intense artist, but also a very uh, very uh, sort of I don't know, rigid pragmatic business person at the same time.
2: Well, I think Van knows what he's worth. And if somebody's paid him for an hour, he's glad to pay, you know, play for that hour. If they want any more songs, you know, they have to pay him a bit extra. Yeah, I, guess I mean, I think, I think that's the way he works. It all goes back to Van's to uh, profound and long-lasting feeling that at serial uh, points in his career, you know, he's been ripped off by the music business. Yeah, that's probably right. Um,
0: well, here's the last question. This is great insight, Alan. By the way, I'm really loving this. Thank you for talking with us here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Here's this This is kind of. Uh, I don't know. Let's see where you see how you process this one. Where do you think the art, the verve, comes from with the artists, and where do you think it goes?
2: Gosh. I'm not sure how I can answer that succinctly. Yes. Uh, I mean, it depends you know, on, on, on the artist, where they draw their inspiration from, what their ambitions are. Um, there are there some um, who just want the opportunity to make music. I think Chrissy Hind would be a classic example of that. Her ambition was to just be in a band, a good little rock and roll band. Uh, and I think she would have been much happier, and the pretenders would have lasted a lot longer if they hadn't become so successful, so incredibly quickly. Uh, I mean, they went from nothing to having huge hits. I mean, the uh, the first couple of singles didn't do too well they, they were there were modest hits and they you know uh, stop your sobbing and kid got them a lot of attention uh but didn't immediately translate into record sales um brass in pocket and the first album changed all that virtually overnight especially in america um and i think things got out of control for chrissy and that's why she she was always kind of unhappy um not satisfied with, with with what had happened to the group. Uh, it seemed like control had been taken away from her. Uh, I remember interviewing her in San Francisco uh, just as the second album came out, and it was already screaming up the American charts, and they were just about to start a huge tour. I thought I would have found her, you know, really excited and a very, very positive mood. But it was quite the opposite. She was, she was quite disconsolate about you know the fact that they were going to have to spend the next year on tour, uh, which meant that you know she'd be writing, you know, fewer songs. There would be no opportunity really for going in the studio, making new music. They'd just be promoting the new album for you know months and months and months on the road. Uh, I think. she she also mentioned the the second album had taken a lot longer to record than she imagined Um, it came together much more slowly than she would have liked Uh, they were working in a studio in Paris with Chris Thomas who had produced the first album and of course he did Roxy Music worked with the Beatles, Harum, John Cale and he was a very meticulous uh, producer, you know building everything up in layers lots of overdone solos Uh, And I think she would have been much happier if she'd gone into Eden Studios uh, in West London uh, with Nick Lowe producing and knocked out the album in a fortnight. That would have been ideal for her. Uh, She didn't like all the, 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 the trappings of success. Uh, her ambitions were for her music rather than, you know, commercial gain in a way. Uh, Not that she didn't enjoy having all the hits, of course, but it was very different to somebody like Sting, for instance, uh, whose ambition was totally ruthless. He was dedicated to becoming a huge star and was prepared to put in efforts on every front, you know, interviewing, touring endlessly. I mean, the police... Um whatever you might think of what they became and what their music became in those early days, they must have been one of the, the, the hardest working bands on the on the planet i mean they they toured America playing every small club that would have them uh they sting unlike chrissy um just embraced the the entire commercialization of his world and his music, and he loved being. A star in a way that uh, Chrissy felt very uncomfortable with.
0: Nice comparison. Nice comparison, Chrissy, and and staying. Uh, I, th- I think you, you hit that question pretty well. And now, you know, I guess the second part of it: where do you think all this goes? You know, uh, all of these artists, all of the creation. Uh, you know, music to me is very important. Obviously, I would, I feel very uh, comfortable saying that it does for you. It means a lot to you as well. Wh- wh- where where does all this go? What does it do for us as as a species, as as human beings? Do you think? Or does it mean nothing? Is it just e- ephemeral and, you know, it's here and it's gone?
2: Oh, I think music uh, is, I think you mentioned uh, we were like two old codgers talking about how great things were, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, but I think for, for people of my generation, um, their, their affection for music and the, the impact music has on them uh, is almost indestructible. I mean, that's why the book is called Too Late to Stop Now. I mean, I'll never stop loving music. Uh, A lot of the music I listen to is music that I was listening to when I was 17, 18, 19. Uh, But I'm still excited by uh, discovering a new group. But I, I, I don't these days go hunting for new music. New music does find me, and I'm excited when it does. Uh, but there's just so much music out there at the moment. Uh, I wonder if I, you know, I just haven't got enough already. Um, there's so many many albums I've got on my shelves uh, that when they came out, because I was so busy editing, uncut, writing, compiling the uh, monthly CDs. Uh, that I might have played them two or three times and thought, yeah, these they sound great. Uh, but recently I've been going through Michelle's and, and there's just tons of stuff um, that if I hadn't overlooked, I haven't at least listened to uh, uh, as much as I would have liked. So there's kind of a lot of catching up still going on. And then you can go back. I mean, I, I can still get excited by, you know, Otis Span or Muddy Waters. Little Walter, loads of blue stuff, loads of old country, uh, loads of folk stuff. Um, I mean, I don't I don't strive to to keep up with what's happening uh, in in music so much these days. And um, it's probably a measure of uh, how hip and contemporary my listening tastes are. My favourite album from last year uh, was a a record called uh, I Ran Down Every Dream by Tommy McLean. He was an 82-year-old uh, former swamp pop legend. Um, he last had a hit in about 1952, I think. Uh, and I Ran Down Every Dream was his first solo album for I think 40 years. And Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe um, helped the album come about. Uh, and it's just a glorious, glorious record. And he actually played in London uh, last November. Uh, he, he opened uh, for four shows at a place called Nell's, uh, where Nick Lowe was playing. Nick has a, uh, started a, a, an annual residency there. Uh, and he was just absolutely glorious. Then he played his own show at a small club called the Lexington. And that was probably one of my favourite gigs of last year, including Bob Dylan at the Palladium.
0: Yeah, I, I I love when you share little bits of video from those performances you attend uh, on your social media sites. Uh, thank you for doing that. Please continue to do that. I feel like I'm there for a moment. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you again, Alan. I wish we can uh, talk even longer, but I have a certain amount of time that, that uh, I, I could uh, use to to you know produce a show. So we're gonna have to pause for now, and hopefully we get a chance to talk again in the not too distant future. Again, folks. Too late to stop now'll we'll be available here in the states in July and uh, you know go to the normal places to find it Thank you Alan thank you so much okay my pleasure take care
2: okay thank you Lawrence bye bye
3: The reason we're here As man and woman Is to love each other Take care of each other When love walks in the room Everybody stand up Oh, it's good, good, good Like Brigitte Bardot Look at the people in the streets, in the bars We are all of us in the gutter Some of us are looking at the stars Look round the room Life is unkind Together, always this way. Your eyes are blue, like the heavens above. Talk to me, darling. The reason we're here, every man, every woman, is to help each other, stand by each other. When love walks in the room, everybody stand up.
0: now some actual findings as published in the April 2022 edition of Harper's Magazine. A global study of 1,554 regions from 1979 to 2019 found that heavy rainfall dampens economic growth. The rings of trees used in European buildings between 1250 and 1699 closely track prosperity and crisis, with the number of felled trees falling during periods of economic decline. Medieval war horses were the size of modern ponies, and wild ass-donkey hybrids used for travel and war in Mesopotamia were presumed to be the prized kungas of Ur funerary avenues, lined with wedge-tailed pendants and infilled ringed cairns, which are among the dry stone Holocene monuments known to the Bedouin as, quote, the works of the old men, emanate from the Kebar oasis. In the Negev, where archaeologists studying a 6th-century Byzantine church noticed a curly-haired, long-nosed, beardless Jesus. Scientists taught goldfish to drive their tanks on land. The expansion of the local bubble, a thousand-light-year-wide star-covered void with Earth at its center, was caused by supernovas. Further support was offered for the fuzzball theory of black holes, and the Schwinger effect was mimicked in the absence of a cosmic event. Researchers speculated that the substantially higher use of erectile dysfunction medication among feminist Canadian men may be due to non-feminist men's underreporting of usage or fear of accessing health care, or to feminist men's greater desire to please their female partners, or reclaim, through better erections, any masculinity forfeited through their feminism. Religiosity was found to be lower in sexually equitable countries, though the decline was more pronounced in men than women. Macaws in Virginia failed to wean themselves off heroin and cocaine, and a new population of white-handed gibbons was discovered in Malaysia. How do you like them apples? I
4: remember the night the kid cut on his shrine
0: Moccasins and flip-flops Marijuana, wine, and mirrors With white, powdery residue Stimulated men and women, two by two High heels and burgundy suede shoes A loft in the village A country home with real shutters A farm with corn crops through the trees Romantic walks in the sunlight, a sweet breeze, Affection and love, the birds and the bees. episode 528 of Troubadours and Raconteurs, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Alan Jones, Harper's Magazine, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Lou Reed, Nick Lowe, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, The Pretenders, Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.